0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: A reading from Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 6 through 10. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke? to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Trevor. Um, again, my name is David Filson. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Christ Presbyterian. And um, man, what an what a incredible blessing it is to come here. And, uh, you know, there's Jeremy Casella leading worship. I, um, I'd heard he was going to be leading worship here, and that's why I came. And then when I got here, uh, Bruce said I needed to preach. So um, anyway, you know, we sang some wonderful songs this morning. In fact, and some of you probably know where I'm getting ready to go with this. We sang the greatest hymn that's ever been written. Uh, let us love and sing and wonder. And if you don't agree with me, Pam, what ought they to do about that? They need to pray about that, right? Because it is the greatest hymn that's ever been written, I think. Uh, the verse four, do you hear what verse four, what you're saying in verse four? Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Uh, that the grace of God and the justice of the justice of God, which could rightly condemn me for my sin, joins with His grace, and then mercy, uh, mercy storehouse opens up to me, and then justice is satisfied. Justice smiles. The justice of God is satisfied and asks no more. But then, about Jesus, lover of my soul. You know, we uh, dropped my son off at college yesterday. For the first time, we just got back. We made this trip down 65 to the University of Alabama, Huntsville, and uh, dropped Luke off at college, and I thought I have cried all the tears I have in me uh, last night, but then we sang, Jesus, lover of my soul. You hear, what you, you hear what you just confessed, false and full of sin am I. I am all unrighteousness. But then in the very next verse, grace to cover all my sin. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we're doing. Now see, here's the thing. In, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that we are to teach and admonish one another as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So even if you were not, you know, uber musically inclined, even if you would say, I don't have a great singing voice, the word of God bids you sing, because when you sing, you are actually. You're doing more than praising, you're preaching, you're proclaiming the truth, you're teaching and admonishing your own heart and all those around you through this kind of theologically rich lyric. Well, anyway, as I said, we took my son yesterday to college, and before we did that on Thursday night, I took him out for sort of a... Last meal before he headed out for the fall semester, we went over to Carrabba's. And I'll never forget, our server's name was Anton. He was a a great guy, and he served us. And I ordered a a filet with mushroom sauce, garlic mashed potatoes. We had mozzarella sticks. This was incredible. But he saw toward the end of my meal, I was beginning to slow down. I was beginning to struggle. And Anton came by and said, hey, don't hurt yourself. And uh, I said, man, you gotta come rescue me because I'm about I'm about to cross that line. You know, you know when a meal is so good, when when a meal is just so good, and you know you should stop, but that was like 15 minutes ago, and you're still you're still in, you're still in it to win it, right? Uh, and he came and he said, Look, I said, Look, man, I, I think you're gonna need to bring me a to-go box and just get this out of my sight because if you don't, I'm gonna eat the whole thing. Um, here's the reality. It was a little bit. I bit off a little more than I could chew. Just to be honest, with you. I had to take some some leftovers home. Or I'll probably work on that tonight. But I feel that way every time I come to the Book of Isaiah. Every time I come to the Book of Isaiah, I feel like I've bit off a little more than I can chew. It, it, it's such a masterfully woven text, and, and that should come as no surprise, uh, given that it is the handiwork of the Holy Spirit. Now, you've heard that text read. You've heard Isaiah read, right? Anytime we hear the word of God, right, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So what I want to do, i want to pray for us that the Holy Spirit would help us understand, but then I'm going to jump immediately over to 2 Peter just for a quick second, all right? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the gospel in Isaiah. We thank you for the gospel uh, all over, uh, Genesis straight through to the maps, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, delight in his ministry of illumination. Uh, give us eyes to see uh, that wherein we fail, Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf mightily prevails, for you ask it in his matchless name. Amen. So look, if you will, at Second Peter, just, just real quickly, because I want to make a comment about, about Isaiah through the letter of Second Peter. Now, 2 Peter may not be one of those Text that you turn to a great deal, but there's so much there. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is reflecting back On an event that happened in Mark chapter 9. Now here's the interesting thing about the gospel of Mark. Some of you may know that the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's gospel. Mark was, as it were, Peter's companion. And the gospel of Mark, fast-paced, right? Mark's not letting grass grow under Jesus' feet. It's a very fast-paced, relatively shorter gospel. But that was Mark's distillation of what he had learned from the apostle Peter about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, Peter writes here in his second letter hearkening back to an event that happened in Mark chapter nine, it was an incredible, an incredible event. And beginning in verse sixteen, he says, "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths." Now, just so you know, in the Greco-Roman world, everybody had cleverly devised myths, and they made a lot of money off of them. And there are always charlatans and hucksters around, uh, ready to sort of try to sell you their cleverly devised myths. Everybody was sort of hung up on the pursuit of wisdom, and there was all kinds of of, of 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 myths and, and false philosophies going around. And so Peter says, we didn't follow any of that when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter is reflecting back on his experience when Jesus took him and James and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration and, as it were, pulled back his flesh and let them know you're not dealing with just another sort of self-appointed political revolutionary. You are in the presence of God himself. And Moses and Elijah come down and begin talking with Jesus. And Peter was overly impressed with this event. In fact, he didn't want to leave the mountain when Jesus revealed to the three of them, look, let me tell you who you've hitched your wagon to. I am God. Check this out. And he just transfigures right in front of them and gives them a sight, just a a sliver of a sight of his pre-incarnate glory. And Peter's reflecting on this. And he's saying, look, we experienced it. We saw it. We heard the voice from heaven. But then he says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And here's the good news about that passage. So do you. In your lap, on your iPhone, on your iPad, whatever the case may be, that word of God, that Bible in your lap is the prophetic word that Peter's saying, look, we experienced it. We saw it. But let me tell you what we have. We have the more fully confirmed prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's my point? When we come to something as majestic as the book of Isaiah, Right, I mean, it just sort of rises like you know Mount Everest, right up out of the center of of the Bible. When we come to something as as overwhelming as the Book of Isaiah, it shouldn't it shouldn't surprise us that it is so masterfully woven, and that, and that we bit off a little more than we can chew because it is the Holy Spirit who has authored it ultimately right? Isaiah really is kind of like climbing Mount Everest. Wherever you start out, there's so much behind you. There's still so much ahead, right? Our text does that to us. It sort of forces us to check our footing at least as far back as Isaiah 56, right? We're in Isaiah 58, but it's sort of forcing us to say, check your footing at least as far back as chapter 56, right? Where God sort of shines a light on the sins, our sins of faking it, of of external conformity to his word and worship, yet ultimately committed to our own self-centeredness. Look back at chapter 56, the first five verses. Chapter 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall be cut off. Now, look down at verse 12 of chapter 56. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. And so in chapter 56, the Lord is exposing pretense, faking it, going through the motions. But then at the very end, he says, look, I'm going to expose your presumption. You think you can just fake it with me and then live like there is no consequence, like there is no judgment, right? Let's just get wine. Let's just fill ourselves a strong drink, right? None of this is going to come to anything. And so pretense and presumption. In chapter fix, in chapter 56, the Lord says, you need to be wary of this. And then you turn the page in chapter 57, we see the Lord calling out to those of us who would be contrite and brokenhearted. Look at verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. And so the Lord is saying, if you will be contrite in heart, you're gonna experience my compassion. So in 56, he exposes our pretense, and our presumption. And then in chapter 57, he says, look, just be brokenhearted, be contrite, be lowly in your heart, be contrite, and you will taste my compassion. What, what do we learn of God's heart in these two chapters right before our text this morning? What, what we learn is of, of his heart, of his posture toward us, is what we see in Psalm 23, verse 6. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, right? That that most familiar psalm, the 23rd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? You run through it and you get to verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall what? Someone tell me. Follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy. And the Hebrew word for mercy is the Hebrew word chesed. Say that with me, a little, little guttural. Let's say that together, chesed. See, you just learned a little Hebrew, a little seminary this morning. You just learned a little Hebrew. That word chesed can also be translated grace. Surely goodness and grace shall follow me. But here's the thing. That word follow in the Hebrew is from the Hebrew root radaf. And every time David uses that word, he is always, always using it of an enemy hounding him, an enemy pursuing him, an enemy hot on his trail. In other words, the word yeraphuni is a word that means chase. So what's going on in Psalm 23, 6 is that surely goodness and grace is on the chase. All the days of my life. What we learn of our Father's heart toward us in Isaiah 56 and 57 is the same thing that we learn of our Father's heart toward us from Genesis, straight through to the maps, that his grace is on the chase in our lives every every single day. And so when we get to chapter 58, where our text is, these first six verses, um, God tells Isaiah to take up trumpet lessons. You see that? Take up trumpet lessons. That's what he says. Blow the blow the trumpet. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, verse 1. Learn to play this trumpet song for my people. They look good. They look real good. They worship. They, they, they seek my ways even. Uh, they've been at this temple thing long enough to know how to fake themselves out. They're going through the motions, but they were not going to the Messiah. They were going through the motions, but they were not going to Messiah. The Messiah. I love what Kevin DeYoung once said, in seeking after holiness, we are not so much seeking after a thing, we are seeking a person. I had forgotten that. You know, another, another prophet in the Old Testament tells, tells us about hearts like my own. Right, tells us like hearts like my own. Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can under Stand it. You know, you ever face your own heart and feel that way? Right? False and full of sin I am. I am all unrighteousness, and, I, and I'm just faking it. We feel that way? Or, or, or do we just sort of check out, medicate, kind of numb out, slip into a sanctimonious autopilot in the Christian life, check off the boxes, attend church, join a Bible study, listen to sermon podcasts? And these things are good. They're crucial. But hearts like mine, hearts like David Filson's, Always find a way around the firewalls that I set up. I always find a way around the firewalls back to faking my faith. We're so like our foremothers and our forefathers in ancient Israel. We hit repeat on the same posture, right? We hit repeat on forgetting his benefits and turning away from him, right? Isaiah 58, and you look at verses 3 to 5 for context, tells us that that, that that posture really is this, right? God does not, um, he, he, he does not find himself impressed by our fasting and our religious good deeds. And, and, and what we see about our posture toward God, I mean, look, look at those verses, right? Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have you humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you will seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable unto the Lord? And what's being said here? by the people of God, is God doesn't see our fasting, right? Our, our religious good deeds, they don't, they don't count for anything, right? Dang, how, how humble do we have to be, God? What's it going to take? Right? Don't, don't you see how we are denying ourselves? Don't you see how we are fasting, how we are checking off all the boxes of temple worship? St. Augustine lived from 354 to 430, early church father. He said the three most important characteristics of a Christian are humility, humility, humility. Uh, I teach a course on apologetics over at Christ Prayers Academy, and the other day I, I, I was sharing with the students. I said, look, you're going to want to write this down because there's going to be a quiz on it. When we think about apologetics, defending the faith, um, one of the most important things is that we go out with great humility. We, we read about this in 1 Peter uh, 3, 15 and 16, and I said, we, we, we must go out with compassion and tenderness and kindness and those kind of things and I said you're going to want to write this down St Augustine once said that the three most important attributes of a Christian are and I said we'll start with number 3 number 3 humility and they're they're writing it down I said number 2 humility and they're going what I said number 1 humility and they're like dropping their pencils like are you kidding me well next day guess what I said get out a piece of paper <laughs> get out a piece of paper we're going to have a quiz And uh, I said, you remember I said yesterday that uh, someone once said the three most important characteristics of a Christian are, I want you to go one, two, three, write them down for me. Well, about the time I said that, one guy back here must have missed that I said it was a quiz. He said, oh, 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 I know, humility, humility, humility. And they all started laughing. We all get an A now. I said, yeah, question number two, who said it? And uh, they were all like, what, you know? And a couple of them got that it was St. Augustine who actually said it. But, but here's the thing. The most important thing in the Christian life is humility. But here's, here's the problem with humility. It's kind of like a bar of soap in the shower, right? Once you're convinced you got it and you squeeze just a little bit, bloop, out it goes, right? It, once you're convinced of your humility, you're not, right? Once, once you are convinced that you are truly humble, and you even want to be known for your humility, right? You, you see the, the, I mean, it's both moronic and oxymoronic at the same time. Uh, I was in a band years ago, and uh, our sound man in the band said, David, man, you're, you're like one of the fastest guitar players I've ever heard. And I said, yeah, you know, I guess I am. But I said, what I really want to be known for is my humility. I have a a good friend, he's a PCA pastor, uh, Jack Foster. He'd come up to me, uh, I don't know how many of you know Jack Foster, but uh, Jack once came to me and said, David, I have a great sermon I just wrote on humility, and as soon as I can get me a crowd big enough, I'm going to preach it. (laughs) The Lord says in effect to his people, humility? Are you kidding me? That's in the the Hebrew. The Lord says, "Are are you kidding me? You think you're humble. Right When I think about how often I have made the things of God, worship, preaching, praying, all about me, right? we need for the Lord to give us eyes to see that too often the God we are worshiping is one created in our own image. It was John Calvin who in his commentary on Acts chapter 2 said that the human heart is fabricum idolorum an idol factory. Our hearts are like little factories just cranking out an assembly line of idols and we're bowing down to those idols. And interestingly, they all look like us and we're just bowing down to them, right? Save me, satisfy me, give me meaning. Right? And as a church, we can do that, right? We can do all the right things. Right? We can wear ourselves out with faithfulness we can try so hard, market the heck out of our church. You know, put up a, a, an incredible website. Talk about how we love bougie coffee, right? At, at our at our church, um, even toss in a word about how our pastoral staff all loves to read Tolkien, even though they've maybe only seen the movies. And and, and we can even we can even mock the, the the sort of hollow hipstery of our church plant competition down the street, and talk much about real holiness, and maybe find. I might even find myself attracted to a church like that. Yet Isaiah says, newsflash, God sees right through it. Individually, we can do the same thing in a walk with God. It's sort of a quid pro quo with God. What have you done for me lately, God? I have prayed. I've been pious toward you, yet you bailed out on me, Lord. You've not bailed me out. You bailed out on me. And we we just have that little seed of anger, right? My dear friend, Dr. Ray Ortland says of verse 3. But the question why, right, here in verse 3, why have we fasted, Lord? You're not taking notice. Why are we even bothering ourselves with with fasting? The question why is not an open-hearted request for instruction. It is a way of dumping their frustration on God. They thought God was being unfair. They were both pious toward God and angry at God. And it was their very sincerity that explains their anger They sincerely believed that they could obligate God and pressure God, and when their fasting and praying and self-deprivation didn't leverage cooperation out of God, they resented him. What poisoned their souls toward God was not sins like thievery and murder. What poisoned their souls toward God was their religion. That often ostentatious Augustinian monk Martin Luther lived from 1483 to 1546, and early in his uh, journey toward really understanding the gospel, he viewed God as this eternally just, righteous, and angry God. But Luther also thought, I can do enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds and get God satisfied with me and keep God satisfied with me. And so he went to work. He did not himself uh, heat in the winter, shade in the summer. He did not himself comfortable clothing and rich food. He worked himself to death. He confessed his sins to the point that he drove his father confessor crazy. Flagellated himself abused himself all in an effort to show God you see how humble I am before you do you see how hard I'm I'm trying to sort of get your attention Johann von Stoppitz his father confessor once said Luther it seems like you don't love God and Luther said love him sometimes I hate him and it was it was Luther who said look here was my situation after he came to Christ, he, he said, look, if ever a monk could have gotten to heaven by his monkery, it was I. I could have. But, but he said, I began persistently pounding upon Paul, particularly in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17, where he read about the justification that God gives those who simply trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness that God gives to us, not something that we can earn or merit or check off boxes and, and, and somehow attain. You know, Isaiah is a call to view Christianity as more than a hobby, right? Colossians 3, 1-4 says that Christ is your very life. He's not a club you've joined. He's not an avocation or an interest. He is your very ontological existence. He is your very life. Isaiah is a call to stop analyzing your relationship with God on the basis of an ROI, your return on investment. Right? I'm fasting, I'm doing some good deeds. Lord, you're not coming through for me. See, here's the reality. If you want to talk about return on investment, what you get from the Lord is of infinite value given what you bring to the table. Because what do you bring to the table? Well, Jonathan Edwards tells us the only thing we bring to the table regarding our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But, but we've got to start viewing life in Christ. And, and, so, and so Isaiah says, look, you need to be a compassionate community. Verses six through seven is what we read, and we heard it read earlier. This is the fast I choose, the Lord says. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Be a compassionate community. A truly Godward faith is unavoidably other-centered. When we tear down the idol of self, when we topple the totem of self, we we see a watching and wondering world desperately in need of Jesus. Right? We don't have to look very far. We have to get outside of Cool Springs. Right? There, there's a lot of brokenness and despair in this well-manicured section of town where we are right now. We see human beings created imago dei, right? stuffed like cattle in a semi, on the way to the slaughterhouses of injustice, poverty, hunger, homelessness, affliction, loneliness, despair, the sex trade industry, the list could go on and on and on. God calls us from self-absorption to self-abandonment for the sake of the gospel. He has freed us from sin and death, but that freedom is to be a functional freedom. Look look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, what do we read there about this freedom that is ours? Verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. A functional freedom. This is why such a huge slice of our church's budget is stewarded carefully into missional partnerships. You heard the announcement earlier about missional communities. and We have missional partnerships that, that wade out into the messiness and the mire of all kinds of dehumanizing forces in the world. Why? So that we as a church can, can do our part in loosing wicked bonds, undoing straps that yoke down the oppressed. Verse 7 moves us out of our our upper middle class comfort zones and says, hey, your bread is not your own. Your home is to be a lighthouse of hospitality, right? Take your own clothing and cover the naked, right? Your own clothing. You know, I'm wearing a new jacket for y'all this morning here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a new jacket. I was really excited to bring it and show it to you, actually. You know what I really like about this new jacket is the liner on the inside, right? I love I love the liner. I can open my jacket like Porter Wagner, you know, used to do. So that's the thing. I love jackets with cool liners on the inside, but but nobody, right? Nobody gets to see them unless you go around flashing them around like that, right? Talk about humility. Um, here's the thing. I wonder if I'm if I'm ever more excited though about the fashion statement Christ calls me to in Colossians three twelve. Indusaste in the Greek, it means to clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves, Colossians 3.12, with gentleness, kindness, humility, and I love the old King James, bowels of compassion. Compassion from the deepest core of, of who you are. Right? We talk a lot about the gospel, and, and that's a glorious thing. There is no comfort apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the Jesus Christ of the gospels makes me pretty uncomfortable. All right? makes me pretty uncomfortable Matthew 25 turn there in Matthew 25 Jesus says Jesus says this verse 31 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty, give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, "Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me." And he will say to those on his left, "Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." For I was hungry, you gave me no food; thirsty, no drink; as a stranger, you didn't welcome me; naked, you didn't clothe me; sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, "Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you?" Right? It's like back in Isaiah. Doesn't our fasting and all of our religious good deeds count for something, right? We're checking off the boxes and the Lord saying, you are overlooking the oppressed and the needy. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it in one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so Isaiah says, look, be a compassionate community. Christ Presbyterian church. Be a compassionate, but be a covered community. Look back at Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, and then we'll make our way to the table. Isaiah 58, look at verses 8 through 10. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, your healing shall spring up speedily, your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise and the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. When we stop treating holiness like an occasional hobby and let our holiness be an expression of our longing for him, our healer comes to us and says, here I am, verse 9. That may be one of the most glorious phrases in all of Scripture. Verse 9, Isaiah 58, the Lord says, here I am, here I am. Is that not one of the most comforting things? Here I am, and I was chasing you all along. The reason you've cried out to me is because I've been chasing you. When, when Lydia, who is about to turn 16, was just a little bitty thing, I would get home, and, um, and she, she'd come, Daddy, she'd run to the door, right? And then I would start chasing her through the house. We'd go from the living room to the kitchen to the dining room, around and around and around, and she just squealed with a great delight. Right? She doesn't think that's so cool anymore, but, <laughs> but she would squeal with delight. And what she loved the most is when I would speed up, and I would scoop her up. And catch her. The Lord is saying, the only reason there's a desire in your heart to cry out to me is because in my grace, I've been chasing you all along and now I have sped up and I have scooped you up to make you mine. Your righteousness goes before you. What does that mean? What does Isaiah mean here? It means the same thing he's going to mean just a couple of chapters away in 61 verse 10 when the Lord says, look, I'm going to take away all of your fakery, all of your posing, all of your self-righteous, self-sufficient pretense, right? I'm going to take all of that away from you. I'm going to cover you, Isaiah sixty one ten, with a robe of righteousness. My jacket pales in comparison right, anything we would put on, right, any any of the masks and the costumes we try to wear to make ourselves acceptable before God and others, the robe of his righteousness, a free gift, he is our rear guard, our protector, the one of whom we read in Hebrews 2, Jesus came to do two things for you and me to destroy and to deliver, to destroy him who holds the power of death and to deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in a lifelong bondage. He is our guard, our protector. Right? We put away our pointing wicked finger when we realize that it was this finger, this pointing wicked finger that was aimed at him up there on that cross. And he points down at you it says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You ever think about that? I mean, look, when, when we sin, we know good and well we are sinning, but we really don't know what we're doing when we sin. We don't know. We do not know the sinfulness of sin. We don't truly know the infinite treason involved in the least little sin we commit, given that we are thrusting our accusatory finger into the face of an infinitely holy God. Yet that infinite God came and made an infinite payment. Jesus Christ came and took away our yoke, right? That's why he says, relieve the yoke of the oppressed, because I've relieved your yoke. How did he do that? Well, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, and in him we would become the righteousness of God. And then he says to you, let let me give you a yoke. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. He takes our affliction. right? He says, look, relieve. Relieve the affliction of those who are oppressed. Because I've received your affliction. He takes our affliction upon himself. Just a few chapters earlier, Isaiah sang this beautiful song of the suffering servant. Beginning in verse 4, surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God, stricken and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace is upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as the sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was being accused for the sins of the very man standing in front of you preaching right now. And yet he opened not his mouth. I love what Luther said. When the devil comes and accuses him and tells, and he said, when the devil comes and he accuses me and tells me what a terrible sinner I am, he does me a great favor because Christ died for sinners. Pour out yourself for the hungry, verse 10. How can the Lord tell us to do that? Because that's what he's done. He's poured himself out for the hungry. He's poured himself out for you and me. The question is, do you feel a tinge of hunger? Do do, do you feel just just a little bit of thirst? Because if you do, if you do, it's because his grace is on the chase. And and what you need right now is is to let your father, your loving heavenly father, in his grace chase you all the way uh, to this table We we, we come to the Lord's Supper, it's it's not a snack, it's a sign. It's the gospel in pictures. We hear the word preached, and we see it, and and we taste it. We we come to this table with eager and hungry hearts as our musicians come and our elders come ready to serve us, and we come here and we feast upon the Lord Jesus himself. This supper is, is for those who know that they are hungry, who know that they are oppressed, left to themselves, and would say to Jesus, come feed me who would say to their father, chase me, speed up, scoop me up, I am yours. If that is you, you've been baptized into Christ, and you're in fellowship with a church that believes and preaches and teaches the Bible, uh, this table is for you. If, if you would say, look, I, I don't know that I would necessarily self-identify as a Christian. Maybe you're just exploring the truth claims of Christianity. Uh, we're thrilled that you're here. We really are. Um, to take the Lord's table, to take the bread and the cup is a confession of faith. It's a way of saying, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm his and he is mine. And, and, and if you would say, I don't know that that is really where my heart is. I don't know that I would confess that. Then rather than take the bread and, and the wine, just, just observe what Christians are doing, coming hungry, needy. You could even come and just gather around and, and just observe Christians taking the Lord's Supper. We, we, would, we would welcome that.